Deuteronomy chapter 3. And that is on page 174 in the Pew Bible. If you're using a Pew Bible, page 174. So continue, get back into our study of Deuteronomy here after the missions conference. This morning we're studying Deuteronomy uh, chapter uh, 3, verses 12 to 20. Let me just start by reading the passage. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 12 says, Of the land that we took over at that time, I gave the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory north of Aror by the Arnon Gorge, including half the hill country of Gilead, together with its towns. The rest of Gilead and also all of Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. The whole region of Argob and Bashan used to be known as a land of the Rephaites. Jair, a descendant of Manasseh, took the whole region of Argob as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Maacathites. And it was named after him, so that to this day Bashan is also called Havoth-Jer. And I gave Gilead to Machir. But to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory extending from Gilead to the Arnon Gorge, the middle of the gorge being the border, and out to the Jabbok River, which is the border of the Ammonites. The western border was the Jordan in the Arabah, from Kinnereth to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, below the slopes of Pisgah. I commanded you at that time, the Lord your God has given you this land to take possession of it. But all your able-bodied men, armed for battle, must cross over ahead of your brother Israelites. However, your wives, your children, and your livestock, I know how much livestock, I know you have much livestock, may stay in the towns I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they too have taken over the land that the Lord your God is giving them across the Jordan. After that, each of you may go back to the possession I have given you. In his uh, classic little book entitled Dining with the Devil, the megachurch movement flirts with modernity. Uh, Oz Guinness, uh, sort of a writer and cultural critic, uh, tells a story of when the Mall of America first opened. I don't know, have you ever heard of the Mall of America in um, Minneapolis? It's, it may still be. At the time when it was built in 1992, it was the largest indoor uh, retail and entertainment space in North America. Uh, the Mall of America apparently has enough square footage to host about 88 football fields worth of floor space. Uh, there's an indoor roller coaster. I think it has a full loop. It's a pretty big roller coaster. And there's a, an indoor miniature golf course, 18-hole miniature golf course, in addition to just hundreds of stores where you can buy just about anything under the sun. It's, it's a vast place. And um, as they opened the Mall of America, there was a church, uh, Wooddale Church. It's pastored by Leif Anderson in Minneapolis. And he somehow got permission to hold a church service in the mall. Uh, they called it, Okay, get ready for this. The Malaluya. So, yeah, anyway. And different people, different people had different reactions to the, the church being holding a service there in the mall. Oz Guinness writes, Many people were enthusiastic. The service was one of the most enterprising and innovative they had ever seen. But others were shocked. A worship service no more has a place in a shopping mall than in a bar or a nightclub. 
Oz says, my own view lies with the former. In other words, he, he's sympathetic to the, the opportunity to have a service in a shopping mall just to, to be out in public. But anyway, he says, but both reactions missed a deeper point. And this is his real concern. He says, the problem is not the presence of a church in a mall, but the presence of the mall in the church. The problem is not the presence of a church in a mall, but the presence of the mall in the church. In other words, where a church gathers to worship, I mean, isn't really that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things, whether we meet in an awesome new building that we're building or whether we meet in a tent or under a tree or in a mall. You know, if we're being a biblical, godly church, we're the church no matter what kind of building or space we meet in. Uh, but, but the bigger problem is when the, the mall, in other words, consumerism and modernity and everything that a shopping mall represents about our culture, when that infiltrates the culture and values and practices of a church, Oz says that's the bigger problem that he sees in our culture is the mall infiltrating the church. And, and what I want to think about this morning is sort of one aspect of that infiltration. The way that modernity and consumerism and the shopping mall negatively affect biblical community. The, the way that it impacts how we relate to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and, and care for each other. Uh, today we look at Deuteronomy chapter 3. We have this story of the division of the land among some of the Israelite tribes. And, and I believe in this passage we have a, a beautiful picture of uh, of biblical community taking place. And some of the, what I would say, just kind of the basic values of biblical community that are so powerful when fully grasped. And so um, maybe it would be helpful just to review where we are in Deuteronomy because we haven't been in Deuteronomy in a couple of weeks. Maybe this is your first Sunday here and you haven't been in the sermon series. So just by way of reminder, uh, Deuteronomy is a collection of sermons that Moses preached when the Israelites were standing on the edge of the Jordan River about to cross from the east of, into the west into the land of Cana and take over the promised land that God had uh, told them they were going to have. And so as they're getting ready to go, Moses preaches these sermons to make sure they're spiritually focused and they're ready to be God's faithful people when they get into the promised land. Moses is about to die. It's kind of his swan song in his last words to them. And, uh, and as part of this sermon series in Deuteronomy, what Moses uh, does in the beginning is he he reminds Israel of their history leading up to this point. So he kind of starts off by taking them down memory lane and says, "Do you guys remember some of the things that have taken place that have brought us to this moment?" He reminds them about their forefathers and how they died in the wilderness. He reminds them recently of how they went into the east side of the Jordan River and there were two powerful kingdoms there. Remember studying this, Sihon and Og, and how these nomadic ill-equipped desert tribesmen were able, the Israelites, were able to overthrow powerful kingdoms. They, they were able to overthrow Sihon and Og. And now, in today's text, chapter 3, verses 12 to 20, Moses reminds them about how they began to divide the land, how they took that land east of the Jordan they'd just taken over and started parceling it out among some of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's in this seemingly innocuous story about dividing the land that I think there are at least two sort of critical principles or aspects of biblical church life, of biblical community and fellowship that are just so important to grasp. I mean, they're, they're basic, but they're so powerful 
And they're the kinds of principles that when consumerism in our culture kind of sneak into the church, they tend to push these principles out and kind of run over them. And so uh, let me just look at these two principles with you. The first one I see in verses 12 to 17, and that principle is this, that if you belong to God, you have a place among God's people. That if you belong to Jesus Christ, you have a place among the people of Christ. And you can kind of see that reflected here in the way the, the Israelites came into the land and they were given the land. You know, look at verses 12 to 17. You get all these funny names and all these funny place names. And, you know, what is this, this stuff all about? You know, what, what are all these names and places? Well, it's a description of, of the land east of the Jordan and the way God divided up that land among some of the 12 tribes of Israel. He took the Reubenites, the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he said, okay, this is your territory, this is your territory, this is yours. It's probably easier to see it rather than uh, to read it if you're sort of unfamiliar with ancient Palestinian geography. Uh, So if you take out your sermon notes for a minute in this little insert in your bulletin, and you'll see there's a map there. i got to say, Google Images is awesome. You can find anything on Google Images. I typed in... Transjordian tribal allotments. And this came up. So I was like, wow. That's Google Images for you. So great little map. So there's Palestine. Um, There's the Mediterranean Sea to the west, Sea of Galilee in the north, Dead Sea in the south. And so there's the Jordan River in the middle. That land east of the Jordan River used to be the kingdom of Sihon and Og, but now has been taken over by the people of Israel. And so there's, see Reuben there? The Reubenites got that rough area. The Gadites got the uh, area north of them. And then Manasseh got Gilead and Bashan. So, so they, it got divvied up. And it's this beautiful thing that takes place. Every one of the Israelite tribes has their land. In coming weeks, they're going to invade across the Jordan River into the west side of the land of Cana. And the other nine and a half tribes are going to get all of their little allotments. But everybody has a place. Everybody belongs. It's not like the Israelites just kind of got to the land of Cana and then it was sort of like the Oklahoma, you know, Sooner land rush. You know that from history where they just kind of opened up the border and everyone just rushed out there in their horses and whoever had the fastest horse could get to the best piece of land and claim it. That's not how it unfolded. God had it all planned. They were going to get certain places. Every tribe had their place. And if you remember that tribe, there were certain areas given to certain clans. And then within those clans, there were families. And every family got their track of land. So, so as an Israelite, you would eventually get down to the individual Israelite and individual family that would say, this area here was given to my family by God. It's a really beautiful concept of everybody having a place in the land of Israel. In fact, this idea of sort of ancestral land holdings was so important that God built into Israel's law code a way of keeping those ancestral holdings within the families. It was something called the year of Jubilee. I don't know if you've heard of the year of Jubilee in your Bible studies. It was something that occurred on a regular basis. How often did the year of Jubilee happen? Every 50 years. Every 50 years. So every 50 years they'd have this big, they're supposed to anyway, have this big celebration. And one of the things that happened in the year of Jubilee was all of the, the, the land went back to the ancestral families of, of the people who originally had it 
by lineage. So, for instance, uh, you're a farmer, you live in, in those days, and you have a couple rough years. There's a drought, some weird virus gets into your cattle and your sheep, and you lose three quarters of your herds. Your family's barely getting by, so to pay, you know, for whatever taxes or food or whatever you have to pay, you actually have to sell off a good chunk of your property to another clan or another tribe. But that's the land God gave your family. Well, at the year of Jubilee, all of that land would be given back. And it would sort of, it's kind of like on a computer. You know, sometimes you've got to restart your computer and go back to default settings because the computer is just so messed up. So you go, okay, I'm going to go back to the default original settings. It's like Israel had this default setting that every 50 years it went back to that, which is a pretty amazing concept. Uh, you know, so, so I was thinking about that. You know, 50 years is like a generation, give or take. So, so it's like every generation, presuming everyone had a normal lifespan, would have an experience of re-receiving the land that God had given to them. Every generation had this experience of God saying, you belong here, you're my people, this is the land I'm giving you. You have a place among the people of God. And he built it into their legal code. Because if you belong to God, you have a place among God's people. And as we move from the Old Testament into the New Testament in Christ, as we move from Israel under the Old Covenant to the church, the new Israel with Jesus, you find that that same principle is there. Now, it looks a little different, right? Because Christians don't all live in one little country somewhere. It's not like when Jesus founded the church, he gave them a map to Australia. And he said, okay, this is going to be the Christian island called Australia. And I want you to somehow get there. And when people become Christians, they move to Australia. And that's the Christian land. I mean, that's not how it works. Christians are spread out among all the, the nations of the earth. We, we live among all the, the tribes and tongues and languages and peoples. And, and so we do disperse among all the nations. And yet, God calls us together in local churches. And everyone who's a Christian belongs in a church somewhere. So, so when you first become a Christian, when you first put your faith in Jesus as your Savior and repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God and you belong to the church universal. But, but, but how do you experience life in the church universal? You experience it in local congregations. I mean, I mean you can't participate in the church universal. I mean, where is it? It's kind of everywhere and nowhere. So the way it works out is, is you have to join a local church. It's like those bumper stickers. You see those bumper stickers? Think globally, act locally, you know. And I, I don't know what that's really about, but, you know, I think it applies to the church. And that we have to think globally. We have to recognize that we're connected to all believers and as part of the family of God. And yet we have to act locally by committing to a local body where we experience life among God's people. So, so Christians, as we're saved from darkness into light, we have a place in a local church. You know, look at this text. Put, put a bookmark here in Deuteronomy. We're going to come right back to it. But I'd like you to turn to, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's on page 1137. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians. Corinthians were really struggling with this whole idea of being one unified people. They were struggling with biblical community. Uh, the mall in, has invaded our church. Well, the, the city of Corinth had invaded their church. And their church had been Corinthianized. And uh, it wasn't good. There was a lot of division, a lot of fighting. 
And so a lot of Corinthians is about unity in the body of Christ. And, and you get this exquisite metaphor that the church is like a body. You see in 1 Corinthians 12:12, 12, 12, page 1137, Paul says, The body is a unit, and though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So Paul makes this observation that actually many ancient writers had made about the amazing character of the human body, that it's one body, and yet it has all these distinct parts to it, but they all function together as a whole. So so kind of a simple, common observation. And then he says, verse 13, uh, verse 12, So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one Spirit to drink. So, so if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. We're baptized in the Holy Spirit at conversion. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not something that happens after our conversion. It's something that happens at conversion. We can have later fillings and greater experiences of the Holy Spirit's power, but, but you receive the Spirit when you become a Christian. Then that puts you in the body of Christ. And it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, rich or poor, male or female, if you belong to Christ, you're part of the body of Christ. So, verse 14, the body is not made up of one part, but many. If the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. Because, and of course he talks about how ridiculous that is, verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. I love that language, God's arranged the parts of the body. Just like he arranged the tribes of Israel and said, okay, you're going there, you're going there, you get this, you get that. So in a sense, in a local church, in the same way, the different parts of the body have been arranged and put together the way God wanted them to be. And the point is, they're all different, but they've been brought together in Christ. And so everyone has a place. You can't walk into the church and say, you know, if you're a Greek, well, there's more a lot of Jews in this church. This is more of a Jewish church, not a Gentile church. You know, I'm always a little nervous about Messianic Christian congregations. It's like, I think there's just a church. You know, we should be a church, not a Gentile church or a Jewish church. We should just be a church of God's people, all sort of knit together depending upon who's there. Uh, you know, so we're not supposed to walk into a church and say, boy, this church is kind of handy and I'm a little bit footy, you know. Uh, <laughs> This is, this is kind of a hand church. Maybe if I was more of a hand person, I would belong here. But I'm more of an eye person, you know? It's, it's like, no, no, you're supposed to be there because that's how God has arranged the body. There's, there's a, the glory of the gospel is revealed in the unity and diversity of the body of Christ coming together. I was talking to a couple of brothers um, several weeks ago now, and, uh, and they were telling me how when they first came to South Shore Baptist, they didn't know if they really fit in or not because both these brothers had grown up in Southie and now they're in a church in Hingham. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar, Southie and Hingham, a little bit different, little, some cultural differences. And they say, no, I don't know if I belong here because this is more of a Hingham church and I'm more of a Southie person. And, and, they, and they talked about how over time they came to realize, actually, 
I have something more in common with these people than I do with people back in Southie, which is we've all been saved from our sins through faith in Christ, and our lives are being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and I find that's an even deeper bond than my social, economic, where I grew up kind of, of bonds and, and things. It, it's so deeper than any ethnic, racial, socioeconomic, language kind of bonds that we have because we're really one in Christ. Um, and, and, and so, you know, you say, boy, this is a Hingham church. Well, yeah, I mean, it is in one sense it's in Hingham, but theologically speaking, this is not a Hingham church. Theologically speaking, there's no such thing as a Hingham church. Because Hingham, the town, did not sponsor this church. There wasn't a committee in this town that made this church. Jesus Christ made this church. The Holy Spirit founded this church through people. And so if you belong to Jesus Christ and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have a place among this church. If, if you're a Christian and you come to a gospel church and you want to join that church as a member, then you have a place there because you're part of the people of God. I mean, those, those are two ifs, right? If you're a Christian, because not everyone is a Christian even if they go to a church. And, and not every church is a church. If the church doesn't preach the gospel, then it doesn't matter if it has a steeple or not. It's not really a church. But if you're really saved and you're with a real Christian community, then if you become a member, you have a place. You belong. And it's, in fact, the very diversity of the body, the, the all kinds of disparate people that the gospel pulls together that reveals the glory of the gospel and the way it unifies and reconciles people. I think one of the things we have to kind of keep an eye on and guard against as as a church is the temptation to to divide the church up into really tight demographically similar subgroupings. You know, especially as as the church grows, especially as we add on and potentially become a larger congregation, one of the dangers that often happens in larger churches is is sort of demographic segmentation and tribalization where people, you know, sort of gravitate to the people who are like them. You know, I've I got to find other people who are like me. Does your church have a Bible study for me? You know, and, and by me, I mean people who are, you know, uh, 30 to 37 and uh, are, are in the IT field and like jazz and um, are into motorcycles. Do you have people like that? Do you have a Bible study for people like that? You know? Oh, sure, yeah, we got exactly that Bible study. Oh, well, then I guess I can join this church because there's people like me. And I think we just have to be careful of that. Um, and, and this happens in larger churches sometimes where, where ministries to certain demographic groups become so enormous and so complex that they kind of become a church unto themselves, sort of a church within the church. And we have to really guard against that. Now, let me be clear, you know, just my own views on this. Is it bad to have a men's retreat or a women's retreat? No, that's a great thing to have. It's great to have a couple Sunday school class for 10 weeks that studies some aspect of marriage because couples need discipleship in the area of marriage. It's great to get singles together to talk about, okay, as a Christian single person, how do I glorify God in this life situation? But, but I guess what I'm saying is let's just make sure that those kind of smaller groups and ministries never kind of take over the whole church's life so that they become a church unto themselves. Because when that happens, then in a sense, kind of the mall has come into the church. 
Because what does the mall do? The mall targets us based on our demographics. It chops us up and divides us and then markets to those niches. I mean, this is kind of basic marketing. Who's your audience? Define the target group. Market to that target group. So if you're a woman and you're going over to the mall to shop because you've got to get some clothes, you know, what, what store do you go to? Well, it depends. Are you kind of a young, hip, alternative uh, teen or early 20-something, maybe you'll shop at Wet Seal. But, but if you're a little more kind of preppy, maybe you'll go to Gap Old Navy. Uh, if you're a little bit older woman and, and maybe you're kind of suburban mom and, and tasteful, but, but you know, not too tasteful. I mean, there's still kind of an artistic, environmentally sensitive side to you. <laughs> then maybe you'll go to J. Jill, you know. Or, or, or if you're just a little more classy than that, maybe you'll be at Talbot's. I mean, you know, it's, sort of, it's kind of like, who are you? Um, I, I had a woman come up to me after the first service, and she just said, she goes, Jeremy, it's where the coupons are and the clothes fit, okay? <laughs> so, anyway, I was way out on, on thin ice, I know, on the whole clothing thing. I, I don't know. But yeah, uh, you know, that's what the mall does. It divides us up into subsections. I, I love the Bible study where all the people are, are kind of different. And from different backgrounds and different ages, there's something powerful that happens in that setting too. Because the body of Christ and the diversity that's reconciled and unified through the gospel is on display for all to see. And so you belong. If you belong to Christ, you belong in a local church. If that's a gospel church and your life's been changed by the gospel, you have a place there. All of God's people do. And we need to care for each other and, and uh, love each other in, in that place. Um, well, I could go on, but I need to keep moving here to get to this other point. So, so that's one aspect of biblical community is that anyone who belongs to God has a place among God's people. And the other characteristic we see of community here, if you go back to Deuteronomy, put your bookmark here in Corinthians. We're going to come back to Corinthians. But go back to Deuteronomy now, Deuteronomy chapter 3. The other aspect of being the people of God together is this, once you belong to the people of God, once you have your place among God's people, you're then bound to care for the others within the community of faith. So, so, there's the, so the diversity is we each have our place, we each belong, and the unity is once we're there, our calling is to love and care for and be concerned for the other brothers and sisters who, who are in that faith community whether it's a little church or a big church, whether it was Israel back then or God's people today, we're called to care for each other in that community. So, so it's not just I have my place in God's people and I'm all set, but it's I'm here for a reason, which is to love and be concerned for the needs of the others. You, you see that reflected back in Deuteronomy 3, verses 18 to 20, where Moses tells these three tribes that just got their inheritance to now cross over and fight for the inheritance in the land of the other nine and a half tribes. He says, verse 18, I commanded you at that time, the Lord your God has given you this land to take possession of it, but all your able-bodied men armed for battle must cross over ahead of your brother Israelites. So look, I gave you this land. It's fine. You can have it on the east side of the Jordan. Your wives can stay here. The kids can stay here. Any men who aren't able to fight. Uh, all your cows. you got a lot of cows. Just stay here. So you guys stay here, but the soldiers in these tribes, you have to go over 
with your brothers and sisters into the other part of the promised land to conquer that area. And once everybody has all of their land, then you can go back home and enjoy your land. But you must go fight. In fact, I love, you have to go ahead of your brothers. You have to be in the, the lead of the charge. You've got to be at the tip of the spear as we go into the promised land and take over the rest of it. And so they, they couldn't just be satisfied with what they have. They were there among God's people, but they had to care for the rest of the body. That's the unity that we see. And so it is, again, going back to the New Testament, in the church. Not only does every true believer have a place in a local church as a member, but we are then there in that church to serve and care for the others. Look, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 12. Notice this kind of second ABC of biblical community. Biblical community 101. If you're in Christ, you have a place. And if you have a place... You're placed there in part to serve others. So 1 Corinthians 12.21, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, with while the presentable parts need no special treatment. God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division among the body, but that the parts should have, here we go, equal concern for each other. And so we're there to have concern for each other, to to, uh, compensate for each other, to make up for each other, to balance each other. And then you get this famous verse, verse 26, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. It's like in a family. You know, when, when one kid does something great, it's like the whole family is honored and they're all, they all celebrate. So, so in the body of Christ, that's how it is. If one part's hurting, the whole part hurts. Have you ever had back pain? Yeah, the whole body knows that the back's in trouble. You know, if, if you ever had a sore tooth, it's like the whole body is focused on that tooth. You can't stop thinking about that tooth. And so it is in the body of Christ. If I have a job and I'm prospering, but you don't have a job and we're part of the same church, then that's my problem. If I'm healthy as a horse, but you just got diagnosed with something, then that's my problem. If I'm single and I'm doing great, and you're married, and your marriage is struggling, that's my problem. If I'm miserable and struggling and got all these challenges, and the person in the pew next to me that I know seems to have this sort of charmed life and nothing's going bad for them, I'm not supposed to sit there and be jealous and be bitter that they're struggling and I'm bad. I should rejoice with them because that's my victory. This is the idea of the interconnectedness and mutuality of Christ's body. We're not trained to think that way. I'm not trained to think that way. Again, this is one of those areas where the mall has come into the church because we've been trained as consumers. And the very heart of consumerism is, what's in it for me? What's the best deal for me? I'm a consumer. Can you sell me a better thing at a better price? Fine. See you later. I'm over here. And, and so as consumers, it's tough to be in community. I, I think community is one of those things that people talk about. It's a, one of those buzzword kind of ideas. Everyone wants to be in community. What is community? And yet very few people really experience it. You know, have we really experienced community? 
And I think part of the reason is that to have community, you have to be focused on the needs of others and sacrificing for others. And, and if I'm a consumer, it's going to be hard to experience community because the essence of consumerism is, does this meet my needs? Does this have a program for my family? Does this have a ministry that's going to suit my needs? Uh, you, you know, I'm a member of the church. You know, what is membership even meaning a consumerized culture? You know, it's like, yeah, I'm a member of Costco and I'm a member of B, BJ's and I'm a member of Sam's Wholesale Club. I'm a member of this gym and I'm a member of that gym. But what, whatever. I'll just drop one and go to the other if it doesn't suit my needs. And, and so being consumers and, and being conditioned as a consumer makes it difficult for me to really be in community because I don't know what it means to put aside my needs for the sake of others and care for them. And yet that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. In fact, look at verse 27. He says, you're the body of Christ. Each of you is a part of it. And then what does he do? He talks about spiritual gifts for serving others. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, Third, teachers. Then workers of miracles. Also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Whatever your gift is, it has a place in the body. And it's there not to say, I've got mine, but how can I help you with yours? You know, it's not like I'm in the church and, hey, I'm all set. I got my friends. I got my ministry. I have my pew. I have my parking space. I have my structure and my schedule and my time. And so, you know, if you're struggling, it's kind of your problem, really, because I have everything that I need. I, I have my belonging. But in the body of Christ, it's like, no, I'm here to serve you with my gifts. I'm, I'm here to care for you. Now, one of the pastors that I've appreciated over the years that I've learned a lot from is a, a pastor in Washington, D.C. His name is Mark Dever, and he has a, a church called Capitol Hill Baptist Church, which is literally on Capitol Hill. It's right behind the Supreme Court building. And uh, in Mark Dever's church, it's an interesting church because he has elderly people and middle-aged people, but then he also has this huge group of 20-somethings because there are all these congressional staffers. And these staffers, you know, and, and sort of people moving through, transient sort of place, and they come to his church too. And, and a lot of these young 20-somethings are drawn to the church uh, because of its sort of rich theological focus. There's a lot of uh, theologues in his church who read a lot of really thick books on church theology and doctrine. Uh, but, but Mark sees the danger of an imbalance there, that they sort of have this hyper-theologized kind of church. So he'll sometimes say to these young 20-something theologues, he'll say to them, you know, if you're not willing to go pick up one of our 90-year-old members and drive her to church, I don't know if you're really a Christian. <laughs> and, you know, he says that to shock them. But it's like, do, do we care? Are we connected? Do we see each other's problems as our own to the degree that, that we see them? Are you aware of, let's just start basic, are you aware of someone else in the church who's a member of the church, that you're a member, and, and you know they're in need? Are you aware of that? Then, you know, before the Pats game today, <laughs> shoot them an email. Just say hi. Say a prayer for them after the service. Even just something small. But, but it's just a constant challenge to say, what does it mean to serve others in the body of Christ? I just think this is an area where, as Americans, we need to grow. As New Englanders, you know, just a special word for those of us New Englanders. That also means if you have a problem, you've got to tell somebody. Because <laughs> we don't do that. We're like, I'm fine. You fine? I'm fine. This too shall pass. No big deal. And, uh, and 
well, okay, I guess, oh, you're fine, great, I'm fine, then we're all fine, let's go out to the Patriots. But that's not how life really is. We have to be open and honest and care for each other's needs. It goes beyond our own church, so I've been talking a lot about the local church, but there's other churches that we need to care for because we are connected to other brothers and sisters. Um, Some of you know Pastor Rich Chamberlain. He pastors over in Cohasset, uh, Beachwood Congregational Church there. And it's kind of a turnaround church where he's been trying to take a church that was drifting from the gospel and bring it back to the gospel. It's really hard ministry to do that. Very hard sledding. Um, I got two emails this week from two different families that both asked me, would it be okay if we went once a month to worship at Rich's church just to encourage him in his ministry? And I was like, yeah, that's awesome. Go, you know, encourage another church. How fantastic to have that mindset. And, and besides, someday we, we hope to start planting churches from our own church. And, and, you know, to plant a church, you have to go more than once a month. You know, that's like four times a month you have to go and uh, actually be there. So we have to start getting into a more regional mentality of caring for God's people and for the needs of the lost around us more regionally, not just our own church. And, and ultimately, missions. I would say missions is kind of the, the furthest horizon of what it means to be connected to the, all the body of Christ around the world and to care for others in other places. Maybe places we'll never go in our lifetime. Maybe, brothers and sisters, we'll never see this side of the Jordan River, so to speak, until we cross over into eternal life. And so missions is caring about brothers and sisters out there. Uh, last week we just finished our missions conference, and it was a great conference, but I have to say the highlight for me of the missions conference, just speaking personally, was our missionary, Pat Devine, who serves in West Africa and Togo. And, and when she presented this uh, New Testament in the Ife language, finally, after 20 years, they finished translating the New Testament for the very first time into this language group. And, and she gave us, as a church, this copy of the Ife Bible. And I was showing this Bible to a bunch of pastors this week, and they're just like, wow. You know, imagine getting the Bible for the first time in your own language. It's, it's staggering. And I just want to commend you as a church for being committed to Pat and being committed to missions and, you know, giving your pledges year after year. And you sort of like, you just give pledges, what does it go to? That's what it goes to. And, and so, you know, you weren't, you weren't happy to just say, well, we got our Bible. I got a Bible. I mean, what's the big deal? Get your own Bible. Learn English. We've got English Bibles. We'll send you some of those. You know? As you said, no, Ife people need Ife Bible. And so let's support a 20-year effort to get a Bible into their hands. And now after you're dead and the people who got it are dead, the Ife Bible will be there for the Ife people. It's staggering, uh, amazing. So that just blew me away. But that's part of this caring for others who are part of the body of Christ, even places that we might not ever go or people we might never meet. If we are really disciples of Jesus Christ, we will love his body. People who follow Jesus but don't love the church, I just don't get it. This is the body of Christ. They're called to love each other. The reason we have a place among the people of God is because Jesus Christ left his place to come here among us. If Jesus had never left his place at the right hand of glory of the Father and come down to earth, we would not have any place among the people of God. It's because of his sacrifice. And talk about being oriented to the needs of others. Jesus Christ was oriented to our greatest need. 
You know, the greatest human need today is not poverty or medicine or education, even though those are massive global needs, and I don't want to downplay them. But we all have a need that so far outweighs them. The need is to be forgiven of our sins and to escape the coming judgment and to be reconciled to God for eternity. This is the greatest human need. And Jesus came, yeah, he, he healed the sick and raised the dead and he did all those things. But the most important thing that he did was that he died to pay for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God and have eternal life through faith in him. That was his main mission. And so Jesus met our greatest need. He, he poured himself out. And this is what really is, is just mind-blowing, is that you and I are obligated to serve each other. God was not obligated to save us. If God had left us in our sins, he would have been completely justified. The amazing grace of the Bible is that God did what he didn't have to do. He died for his enemies to save us. And so Jesus has given us a place through his death on the cross. Jesus has met our deepest need. And so let us be transformed by his grace and empowered by what he's done for us through the Holy Spirit. And by the Spirit's power, help us, may he help us to love each other and to be the kind of body that we read about here in 1 Corinthians. Let's pray.